In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 11. So you will have the presentation here, but I hope you can open the, the Bible in your uh, phone so you can be able to follow verse by verse. Uh, in chapter 10, after the return of the 70 from their uh, mission trip, so the Lord Jesus Christ offered a public prayer to the Father, which is recorded to us in Luke chapter 10, verse 21 and 22. In this prayer, the Lord expressed his joy over the success of the first missionary journey of his disciples. In chapter 11, the chapter that we will study tonight, the disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, just as John the Baptist taught his disciples. It was common for the disciples of rabbis in, in, in Jewish tradition to have a communal prayer together, so all of them will pray together, uh, to unite them. In this chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ gave us three important teaching defining the Christian attitude toward God in prayer. Three important teaching. What are these three? Number one, the Lord's Prayer from verse one to four. Then persistency in prayer from verse five to eight. And effectiveness of prayer from verse nine to 13. This chapter is 54, eight, uh, 54 verses. We'll study half of it today. Half of it, not all of it. But the outline of the chapter, from verse 1 to 4, the Lord's Prayer. From verse 5 to 9, the fervent prayer. From 10 to 13, the effective prayer. Then from 14 to 23, a house divided against itself cannot stand. From 24 to 26, unclean spirit return. 27 to 28, who are the truly blessed? 29 to 32, seeking a sign. 33 to 36, the lamp of the body. From 37 to the end of the chapter, woes to the Pharisees and lawyers. Lawyers doesn't mean attorneys. Lawyers, people who interpret the law. Don't confuse them. So let's start from verse 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So, Luke in particular, in his Gospel, has taken notice of our Savior's praying often. No other evangelist mentioned how many times the Lord prayed as Luke. For example, he was praying in his baptism. Only St. Luke that mentioned this. He was praying in the wilderness. He prayed before the appointment of the apostles. He prayed and continued to pray all night several times. Also, he was alone praying as we read in Luke chapter 9 verse 18. His transfiguration took place when he went up to pray. This up to chapter uh, 9. In chapter 10, he prayed publicly to the Father. And, and the rest of the Gospel of Luke, he mentioned also other times in which he prayed. Uh, so it seems 
in chapter 11 that some of the disciples heard their master praying. So there was something about watching the Lord praise, praying that made them want to learn how to pray as Jesus prayed. So they waited until he finished prayer and then they asked him, also in their mind, you know, some of the disciples of Jesus were disciples of John the Baptist before, like John the Beloved, like Andrew. So apparently John the Baptist had taught his disciples how to pray. So now the disciples wanted to learn more from their teacher, our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, So he said to them, When you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, the Lord's Prayer in the narrative of St. Luke, you can say either contain five petitions or seven. It depends how you're going to divide them. Two or three have reference to the love of God. And three or four to human needs. It depends how you're going to divide them. I will explain. In teaching us to pray, Jesus encouraged us to humbly address God as Father, which indicate an entirely new relationship with God based on the gift of a new and eternal covenant in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me explain this. Jesus came as bridegroom, and we are the bride. So between the bridegroom and the bride, there is marriage. In this marriage, the two shall become one. So we will be one with Jesus. Who is performing this marriage? the Holy Spirit. Then in Jesus, we become children of God the Father. And as Jesus can address God the Father, Father, so only in Jesus, we can address God the Father, Father. No other religion address God Father. And no one can address God Father unless he believes in Jesus. Because this sonship to God the Father only true when we are one with the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of our prayers are addressed to the Father. Unfortunately, many of us, when we pray, we have the image of the Son in our mind. Even when we say, Our Father who art in heaven, we imagine the Son as if we are speaking to Jesus, not to the Father. One element, one important element of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ is to restore our relationship with God the Father. After this relationship was severed by the fall of Adam and Eve. Only in Jesus we can approach God the Father. So, in our prayer, I want you to understand this. We speak to God the Father in Jesus Christ. Because I cannot speak to God the Father if I am separated from Jesus Christ. 
So we speak to God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. Led by the Holy Spirit. Led by the Holy Spirit. So it is by the grace of God that we can recognize God the Father as Father. It was very unusual for the Jews of that day to call God Father. Actually, for the first century Jewish authorities, if you call God the Father, if you call him Father, this was considered blasphemy. And this was accusation against our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons why they sought to kill him, as we read in John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, because he called God Father. So only because he called God Father, this was for them a strong foundation to accuse him of blasphemy and to kill him. Scholar Tertullian wrote, the expression God the Father had never been revealed to anyone. Even when Moses himself asked God who he was, he heard another name, Ahia, or Jehovah. The Father's name has been revealed to us in the Son. Why? For the name Son implies the new name of God, Father. God is Father to Jesus. And it is Jesus who shares his divine sonship with us in this marriage. He's the bridegroom and we are the bride. So, it is through Jesus that we are made sons in the Son through our baptism and become partakers of the divine nature. No longer to be called sons and daughters of Adam, but sons and daughters of God. Now we are members in the family of God. He is our father, but he is our father in heaven. When we say in heaven, we remember God's holiness and glory. Also, this prayer focused on us as a community. We are one. That's why we say our father, not my father. Our father. So the first words of the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, teaches us that we should express our worship, our love, before we express our supplication. Because when we say our Father who art in heaven, we express our love, he's our Father, and our worship to his holiness and glory. The first petition, I told you there are two or three petitions directed to God. Directed to God. The first petition, hallowed be your name. So, meaning, God's name be held holy or sanctified. It is significant that this is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. This petition actually is the primary petition of all petitions. We should first pray that the name of God be sanctified everywhere on earth, in heaven, throughout creation, in both time and space. We also need to make this petition personal and relevant. How come? When we say, hallowed be thy name, as if we are saying, let your name be sanctified in my life today, God the Father. This petition for sanctification of God's holy name can be expressed in that. 
we sanctify his holy name by his command to us, when we obey his commandment. Also, when we live holy life as he is holy, when we obey his will, and by our offering of reverence and praise to him. But if our lives are not holy, then we defile that sacred name because we are called by his name. Abuna several times, like in the commemoration of saints, your holy name which is called upon us. So if we don't live holy life, then we defile this sacred name. It became our family name. The name of God became our family name. It's called upon us. So we remind ourselves that we are called by our Father's most holy name every time when we make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. His name is our name because he is our Father. So his name became our name. The second petition, your kingdom come. This petition requests that the Father's kingdom be manifested in our lives and among mankind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, St. Paul explained that the Son now reigns till the second coming in which he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. So when we say your kingdom come, speak about the kingdom of the Father. Everyone wants to guard his own name and reputation. Every one of us wants to guard our name and our reputation. But we must resist the tendency to protect and promote ourselves first and instead of put God's name, kingdom, and will first. So we need to put the name of God, his kingdom, and his will first. So this shows that prayer is not a tool to get what we want from God, but it is a way to get God's will accomplished in us and around us. Let me differentiate. Sometimes our prayer, we make the decisions, and I want God to execute it for me. God, I want to get this job. I made the decision. And if God actually did not execute it for me, I'll get angry at God. But this is the wrong prayer. God, you know, is not working for us. We are created for Him. We exist to do His will. So the true prayer as Paul said, what? What you want me to do? What you want me to do? I am here to execute God's will, not the opposite. Not God is, is here to execute my will. That's why if you want to count this as a continuation, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then there are two petitions. But if you look at it as a third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then there are three petitions regarding God. Hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. In heaven, actually, there is no disobedience. There is no obstacle to the will of God. On earth, unfortunately, there is disobedience. And there are at least apparent obstacles to his will. But we as citizens of the kingdom of the Son now, we want to see the will of the Father to be done freely on earth as it is done in heaven. That's why we say, your will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. But maybe a person can ask a question. Why God wants us to pray that his will would be done? As if he is not able to accomplish himself. <coughs> of course, God is more than able to do his will without our prayer or our cooperation. Yet he invites us, uh, invites the participation of our prayer, our heart or our action, in seeing his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we say your will be done, means help me, O God, to execute your will here on earth. Help me to be obedient to your will. Help me not to be a hindrance or an obstacle to accomplish your will on earth. This finished actually the three petition regarding God the Father. Then there are three or four petitions regarding us. The first one, give us day by day our daily bread. This is a turning point in the Lord's Prayer. The first two or three petitions were addressed to God. The second series of petitions concerning us, give us our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If you combine it with do not lead us into temptation, then there are three petitions. If you're going to separate it, then there are four petitions. So generally speaking, the church fathers, I will name, like scholar Origen, scholar Tertullian, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, Ambrose, Augustine, interpret this word, bread, not for the common bread of everyday life. We are not speaking about the bread that we eat it every day, but for a spiritual food, in particular, the Holy Eucharist. As if we are saying, God, allow us to be able to partake of your bread, Eucharist. Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven. For example, St. Augustine says, Eucharist is our daily bread. The power belonging to this divine food makes it a bond of union. Its effect is then understood as unity. So that gathered into his body and made members of him, we may become what we receive. We become him. This also is our daily bread. The reading you hear each day in the church and the hymns you hear and sing when you come to the liturgy, all these are necessities for our pilgrimage. So basically saying this bread to unite us to be one. And the reading and the hymnology are necessities for our journey. So the question here, do we interpret this petition as daily nourishment that we need to survive physically and spiritually? So the Church Father acknowledged that all bread, heavenly, like Eucharist, and materially, like the bread, all bread does indeed come from God. And we do provide in cooperation with God's creation, the bread, that supernaturally changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Because liturgy cannot be done without us. At least three persons have to assemble together to have a liturgy. However, the church fathers warned this interpretation of bread for our physical nourishment. And 
most of the church father said this petition refers to the heavenly bread that's Christ, our Savior. He's the living bread who came down from heaven. Some other scholars said about this daily bread refer to Jesus Christ himself, the bread of life. Others thought it speaks of the word of God as our daily bread. So the word of God is our daily bread. The second petition concerning us, forgive us our sins. As we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Here our Lord Jesus Christ makes forgiveness the cornerstone of our relationship with God. If we don't forgive, we'll not be forgiven. And if we don't forgive, be forgiven, if we're not forgiven, then there is no relationship with God. In God's mercy, he has forgiven us our sins. And therefore, we must show the same mercy to those who have hurt us and seek our mercy. The third, lead us not into temptation. Temptation is different than trial or test. In Arabic, both of them are translated tagroba. For example, in James chapter 1, number all, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. In Arabic, Lead us not into temptation. بالعربي لا تدخلنا في تجربة. لكن في فرق بين الاثنين. There is difference. Temptation means to be tempted to fall in sin. Trial or test to test your faith as God tested the faith of Abraham. Not to fall into sin. That's why St. James said, count it all joy when you fall into, into trials. But we are praying, lead us not into temptation, protect us from being tempted to commit sin. God promised to keep us from any testing that's greater than what we can handle. God does not tempt man to do evil, as James said in James chapter 1, verse 13. But he allows his children to pass through these temptations. So what do we mean when we say, do not lead us into temptation? Some claim this is a poor translation, claiming that God does not lead us into evil doing. They say that better understanding of this phrase in the original Greek text can mean, do not let us yield to temptation. So protect us from yielding to temptation. Or do not allow us to enter into temptation. So, in this petition, we recognize that human efforts alone are not enough to help us cope with temptation. We must turn to God to get the strength and the grace we need in order not to yield into temptation. We must turn to God to get the strength we need to resist the temptation to sin. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, also to fight the battle against sin in order to live the victory of holy life. But deliver us from the evil one, so we can take this as the fourth petition. So asking us to deliver us, the evil one is Satan, to deliver us in this battle with Satan. I told you in this chapter there are three teachings. This was the first teaching about prayer. Second teaching from verse 5. They ask them, teach us how to pray. So he's teaching them how to pray. He's giving them a parable right now. And he said to them, 
which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to sit before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise to give and give it and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So here the emphasis on persistence in prayer. This is the Lord's second teaching on how to pray and what our attitude should be toward the prayer. The Lord, why he chose midnight? Why he didn't say in the mid, middle of the day? Midnight is chosen as being the time at which above all other time, all people are expected to lift to their repose. They are sleeping. And this unexpected visitor asked for three loaves. Why three? One for himself, one for the guest, and a third a reserve. Definitely it took a lot of boldness for the man in the story to so shamelessly ask his friend in the middle of the night. He really wanted and needed the bread. That's why he was persistent. Yes, idle repetition in prayer are forbidden. As the Lord said, don't repeat petitions in vain. But persistency in prayer, wrestling with God, not, let him, not letting him go until he blesses, like Jacob in the Old Testament. Here, the emphasis on this point. So the implied lesson is, the man who prays should think that God will care for those who plead and will give them their daily bread, because now this man is asking for bread in both higher and lower senses of the world. So we need actually to be persistent when we ask for the bread, for the Eucharist, for Christ, for the word of God. This parable and another parable in Luke chapter 18 are teaching the same lesson, that we ought always to pray, not to grow faint-hearted when the prayer is not answered for a long time. Sometimes when our prayer are not answered for some time, we give up and we get angry and we say God doesn't answer our prayer. These two parables, the one we just mentioned and the one in Luke 18, they imply that we have to wait for the fulfillment of spiritual desires. And they teach that it is worth our while to wait. You should wait until fulfillment will come from God in the proper time. God is good to those who wait upon him. That's why the Lord said, because of his persistence or his importunity. This word persistence is a strong word. A one who is asking shameless, shamelessly, persistent in the face of all that seems reasonable. It was not reasonable to knock on your neighbor at the middle of the night and also to knock persistently. It's not reasonable. But he is refu refusing to take a denial. The borrower had only need to keep on knocking to get all what he wants. God often waits for our passionate, persistent prayer. God wants us to be keep knocking. 
It does not change God's intention toward us. Keeping knocking. Rather, our persistence change us to recognize the work of God in us and His will in our life. Again, persistence will not change God's intention toward us, but it changes us to recognize the will of God toward us and His work in our life. Then the Lord said, after he said this parable in verse 9, he encouraged us. So I say to you, ask like this man, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. So, Here the Lord is encouraging us to ask persistently. And now he is speaking to us about the effectiveness of prayer. Uh, So I want you to notice God did not put any restriction on prayer. St. Jerome said, it is written, to everyone, to everyone who asks, it will be given. So if it is not given to you, it is not given to you because you don't ask. So ask, and you will receive. Our Lord Jesus Christ has already given us his own model prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Now he is encouraging us to pray by giving several commands and promises. Ask, knock, uh, and uh, seek. Ask, seek, and knock. So in verses 9 and 10, Jesus gave us three direct commands and three promises. If we follow this command, we will get the promise. Ask, everyone who asks receive. Seek, everyone who seeks will find. Knock, everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Also, we are told to keep on asking, seeking, and knocking. Persistence. So all these verbs are continuous. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. But if we ask with double-mindedness, will not receive, as St. James said in James 4.3. So, if we are un... Or, or, sorry. Or we, if we ask something that will hurt us, will not receive. Uh, St. James said in James 4.3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask evil to fulfill your lusts. Now the Lord actually impresses us. He wants to explain to us the love of God the Father. He told us, call God Father. So in verse 11 he said, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, we are born with corrupted nature, know as fathers how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father, our Father who art in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what, what we need to ask for, or to knock for, or to seek, is the grace of the Holy Spirit. So our Lord keeps on presenting innocences of loving fatherhood of God. So our Lord illustrated and confirmed that he had said before that God is our Father by a common example among men. The relation between a father and a son is a natural relationship. It's very near. 
And it is usual for a son when hungry, at the proper time of meals, to ask bread of his father. And when he does so, will the father give him a stone? Definitely not. If the father give him a stone, then he would show that his heart is very hardened, or harder than these stones that he gave. If a son asks for a fish, will the father give him a serpent? Will he try to deceive him, especially some sort of fish which would poison or sting him? Would not he restore and nourish him? If he give him a serpent, such inhumane, cruel parent are not surely to be found. Any human father loves to bless his children and would never answer a simple request for something good with something evil. You are not going to ask egg and then you will get scorpion. So if this is the case with us, how much more will God answer us? God especially loves to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit, He will give it to you. The problem is in our receiving, not in God's desire to give. God always wants to give. But we need actually to open our hearts to receive. It is not difficult for even a wicked father to determine that one choice is definitely better for a child than the other. A wicked father can say, this is bad for my son, this is good for my son. So the point here is even the unrighteous know the difference between what is good and what is bad for my children. Therefore, can you trust your Heavenly Father to give you what is good when you pray? It's interesting that the emphasis in this parable lies in the contrast. Fish versus serpent, stone versus bread, scorpion versus egg. Not in the comparison between the Heavenly Father and the human father. The comparison, if you ask something good, you will get something bad or evil. So the Lord acknowledged that even ungodly and unrighteous parent can perform good acts when it comes to their children. So when it comes to us, definitely, if, when it comes to our Heavenly Father, definitely He will do what's best for us. Verse 14. And he was casting out a demon. And it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitude marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Baal-Zabub, the ruler of the demons. Other, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Baalizabub. And if I cast out demons by Baalizabub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So a crowd gathered around Jesus and he healed a demon, healed a, a demon-possessed person. And this is the first of three episodes in, in this chapter when Jesus deals with either demons or sign from heaven. As we read in verse 14 to 23, 24 to 26, 29 to 32. Most of the people were impressed and amazed 
but some showed accusation against the Lord Jesus Christ. Some, they could not imagine and they could not accept that Jesus is the Messiah. So these men could not deny the reality of the miracle. This child was healed. So they tried to suggest that Jesus had dealing with some great evil angel whom they called Ba'al Zabub. And as I will explain, Ba'al Zabub is all Jewish tradition. This accusation most probably was whispered among the people by some Pharisees who came from the capital, Jerusalem. The words of the charge were evidently not addressed to Jesus, but it was whispered among the people. But Jesus, because he is God, he knew their thoughts. What is the origin of word Ba'al Zabub? In 2 Kings 1, verse 3, we read that this idol deity was the god of Ekron. God of Ekron. God of Ekron means Lord of Flies. Baal, Baal means Baal, Lord. Zabub, Lord Deban, Flies. So that, that, that Baal is a book, the Lord of Lies. So some people claimed that Jesus has Baal the book, this great demon, and by him he is casting out demons. Other, they want to, to be sure that he is a Messiah. So they thought a sign from heaven. He just saw a sign now, miracle. He healed a person. So, some other want other proof. Give us another miracle. That this great work is not derived from the realm of darkness, from Satan and his soldiers. So they asked him to show them that their suspicion is baseless and by performing more signs. If you, you, you perform more signs from heaven, has nothing to do with the demons, don't cast out demons, you need a sign from heaven, so we'll believe that you are the Messiah. But the Lord actually answered them logically. And he told them, if I am an agent of Satan, and I'm how I am working now against Satan, by casting a demon, then actually I am starting a civil war in the kingdom of Satan. Satan is, is casting out Satan. Then his kingdom will perish. So the point here that Satan would not work against another Satan, another demon. And his accusers had to answer how Satan Ben, would, would benefit from the work of Jesus. If, if Jesus by Satan, by Baal Zabub is casting out demons, then the kingdom of, of the darkness will be destroyed. So this argument is perfectly simple. It's not thinkable that the prince of evil would fight against himself, which he would be doing if he puts such mighty weapons into Jesus' hand. If Satan puts this weapon in Jesus' hand, then he's fighting against himself. If their accusation is correct, then even their own Jewish exorcists, exorcists people who are casting out demons, would claim to cast out evil spirits by Satan. And if Jesus is casting out the demons by Satan, then also any exorcist among the Jews will be casting out demons by Satan. So a question has been raised by the Lord Jesus Christ respecting these professed exorcists of evil spirit. And the Lord told them, your sons, 
But who, who were they? Some said that the Lord speaking about the apostles because he gave them power over unclean spirit. But most of the church father refused this thought. But your sons here could be that the Jewish exorcist or the student of the wise, disciples of great rabbinical schools. So if Jesus heals by the power of God, then he is an agent of God. And the coming kingdom, they preach it in Judaism, has arrived. That's why he told them in verse 20, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So if you believe that I am doing this by the power of God, then the kingdom of God that you preach in Judaism has arrived to you. Uh, and since in accusing Jesus of casting out demon by the power of Satan, by, by, by this accusation, they implied that the Jewish exorcist, they are casting out demon by Satan. That's why the Lord said, let this exorcist judge the accuracy of your accusation. He told them, they will be, therefore, in verse 19, therefore they will be your judges. Go and ask them. Go and ask them whether uh, they are casting out demons by Satan or not. And the Lord completed this part of his defense against the accusation by a reference to his catological judgment when he said surely the kingdom of God has come upon them so Jesus meaning here those who slander him will face divine judgment divine judgment when he said they will be your judges so he implied can judge you here on earth but if you are slandering me then you will face a divine judgment in the last day, as he said in verse 19. Let's stop here at verse 20. Uh, almost half of the first chapter of today. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.